0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Those of you who are joining us for the first time, we do have some visitors today, or maybe you've been out of pocket. Um, we've been going through the letter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. It's got 16 chapters in our English Bible, but Paul wrote it, the Apostle, just as one long letter, probably on a scroll, or maybe a couple of scrolls, and uh This letter was written to a church that he actually planted. He started that church in a very pagan, secular area, Gentile primarily. Um, And he began preaching and started gathering disciples and was able to start a little church, and that church grew. And he, he stayed there with the saints in that church for about a year and a half, teaching them theology, no doubt trying to establish some leadership to take over when he left. And he did leave after a year and a half and went to plant other churches and some time had gone by, we think maybe a couple of years now. And Paul had some interchanges back and forth with Corinth. They were having problems. They had some questions. So there was correspondence. Paul had written at least one other letter before First Corinthians trying to answer their questions, resolve some of their difficulties. Um, so a couple of years after he left the church, he wrote and sent First Corinthians chapters 1 through 16. If you want a simple way to break down all 16 chapters and A very uh, simple outline by way of reminder. Uh, Chapters 1 through 4, Paul deals with unity, and we already did that. Uh, The Corinthians were having a hard time getting along with each other as believers. A lot of dissension, conflict, uh, party spirit. We dealt with that thoroughly. Very practical for us because that goes on in the church today. That goes on with human beings all throughout history. That's why it's so relevant. We learn from those principles. So chapters 1 through 4 dealt with uh, how to live in unity chapters 5 through 7 dealt with purity so there were some moral issues sexuality marriage those kind of things so 1 through 4 is unity 5 through 7 is purity and now uh, a new section of the book chapters 8 through 16 is theology Paul deals with a lot of theological issues now uh, for the Corinthians trying to answer their questions so that's just a rough outline but it's pretty accurate in terms of how he broke down his epistle and we uh, talked about how 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we already looked at that, and I said that chapter 8, 9, and 10 needs to go together. That's kind of one discussion that he's having with them with an issue that they brought up in their letter. They asked Paul questions in their letter that they wrote Paul, and he wrote back. And one of the questions that the Corinthians asked their former pastor and the apostle was, hey, Paul, what what do you recommend or suggest or what do you think the correct answer is regarding this problem we have in our culture with food that is dedicated or sacrificed to false gods and and then people eat it uh banquets or at home or they buy it in the butcher shop at the store and should christians even be uh, buying that meat that's been prayed to or dedicated to a false god because after all christians don't believe in idols and false gods there's only one god it's the triune god of the universe so meat that's dedicated to an idol. Is it contaminated? Is it poisoned? Is it demon-possessed? Will it give us the cooties? Is it unkosher? Or can we have the freedom to eat it? And so there was that dispute going on in the church. And it probably affected just about every Corinthian uh, in that church because it was so much a part of their society and their culture, uh, food dedicated to idols. That's just uh, There was a proliferation of false religions, false gods, false temples all over the place, and you could almost uh, not escape it. It confronted you at every turn. So it's a practical question for them. Uh, Instead of Paul giving a very short one-sentence answer that's black and white or dogmatic, simply saying yes or no, he goes on really for three chapters. And the reason he takes so long to answer this question because ultimately what they were asking was it was a difficulty they were confronting that was not explicitly stated in a very black and white dogmatic way yes or no answer in the Bible. He couldn't point to a verse like, do not murder, that's clear. Do not lie, that's clear. Uh, This kind of delved into areas of preference, personal experience, not necessarily a yes and no answer. As a matter of fact, it always came down to case by case scenario that you had to think through, uh, vet it through biblical principles, lay it before God, be in prayer, look at the context, then make a decision and act. So that was pretty complex. And so Paul's trying to lay down principles to deal with these kinds of issues that we are confronted with in the Christian life every day. We call these typically gray area issues. Gray area issue is something that we would say is not black and white in the Bible. It's not categorically yes all the time. It's not categorically no all the time. Getting drunk is not a gray area. It's categorical. Getting drunk is sin. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 18. But uh, the issues they were dealing with here are gray areas, not always so clear. So, Paul laid the foundation down in chapter 8, uh, and we noted that there were kind of two camps in the church. There were those uh, on this particular topic that had a weak conscience, they were considered the weaker brother or the weaker sister in Christ. They were weak in that their conscience lacked accurate biblical information. And they had a hypersensitivity or a prohibitive conscience that caused them to have their conscience violated uh, maybe in a way that wasn't always legitimate in keeping with true biblical theology. So they weren't experiencing the freedom that they should have in Christ in terms of their thinking. So they were prohibitive and uh, maybe on the side of legalism. And so uh, they were the ones that kind of thought that idol meat actually was poisoned by gods and could be demon possessed and it's got the cooties and no christian should have anything to do with that and it's pretty clear that these christians at one time were idol worshipers who probably took meat and sacrificed it and prayed to a god so all the more when they saw another christian eating idol meat they just thought about their past and that was a major stumbling block for them because they engaged in all kinds of gross sin with that practice of dedicating Uh, meat to idols then there was the other camp that had liberty in christ Uh, they knew demons weren't real or that idols weren't real and uh, demons didn't live inside of cheeseburgers and there's only one god and it's the triune god of the universe and so they could eat a cheeseburger or whatever with a clear conscience Um, and so they had great liberty they had a clear conscience Um, but also in this case they lacked love sometimes towards their brothers who had the weaker conscience And so Paul kind of rebukes them for their individualism. So the first camp had a problem with legalism, the second group with individualism. And so Paul's trying to find the balance here. And bottom line, the theme all throughout is, you know what, legalists and individualists, the overriding Christian ethic is, you need to love one another and defer to one another and prefer one another over yourself. That's it. That's really Paul's practical principle in the end. And that's a beautiful principle that we can take away and apply in our own life as Christians. So we can apply this principle today wherever we go. And we're going to see that in chapter 9. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 9. After Paul lays the groundwork, he concludes in verse 13 of chapter 8. It said, Therefore, food causes my fellow Christian brother or sister to stumble, the weaker Christian, Then I as the mature Christian or the Christian with a stronger conscience in this area. I will never eat meat again. I'm going to deprive myself if it's for the good of my fellow brother who's watching and observing my behavior. I'm going to be other-oriented. I'm going to be selfless. That's what Paul said. He's setting the example so that I will not cause my brother to stumble and fall into sin by violating their conscience. Oh, yeah, Paul, really? Would you, huh? Would you, huh? I mean, Paul, hears the challenge from the Corinthians in verse 13. So Paul says, yeah, actually... Not only will I, I have done so. And I actually did so while I was in your midst. If you were paying attention, I deprived myself continually on your behalf that you might not stumble. And a lot of the Corinthians were probably thinking, when? When did you deprive yourself? So that is the point of chapter 9. So let's go ahead and look at it. So the principles are in chapter 8. The portrait or the illustration is in chapter 9. And Paul uses himself as an example. I want you Christians to defer to one another. I want you to deny yourself your Christian liberties for the good of other believers, and I want you to do it the way I have done it to you. Paul's not being arrogant. He's not being prideful. He's being realistic as an apostle, as a pastor, as a model for these Christians in a way that they can relate to the example. So that's verses 1 through 14. So let's go ahead and look at it on this principle. And I just called this uh, sermon, Follow the Leader. Do what Paul does in this area. Depriving yourself of your freedoms and your liberties for the good of other believers around you. So I came up with five kind of principles for verses 1 through 14. Uh, and I, right there at the top, be like Paul who withheld his liberty. Be like Paul. That's what we need to do as Christians. So that's what you need to practice this week. That's what I need to meditate upon myself. When do I need to deprive myself for the good of another believer who's watching and around me? Because inevitable, it's it's going to be coming it's going to happen so we need to be like paul so this is how paul deprived himself of his liberties among the corinthians and he gives them a reminder to let them know so let's go and look at those five principles of how paul deprived himself for the good of others that they might not stumble in the faith the first one is in the first five verses after saying uh, paul saying that you know i'm willing to deprive myself so that i don't cause other christians to stumble and i've already done it verses one through five let me remind you. And he asks four rhetorical questions, all demanding the answer, yes. And he says, am I not free? So one of the problems was some arrogant Corinthians knew their freedoms in Christ. They knew their liberties, and they wanted to exercise their liberties and even boast about their liberties. I can eat this meat. I'm free in Christ. And they are kind of do it in the face of uh, other Christians who didn't have that understanding and so paul's kind of this is a mild rebuke uh so you're free you're you got your liberties well i do too i'm a christian just as much as you are that's why he says am i not free the answer yes i am free i am free to exercise all of my liberties in christ jesus that He has bestowed upon me yes true as a principle and then he takes it to a higher level am i not an apostle not only am i a christian with liberties in christ that i can exercise uh i'm in a special category of christian i'm an apostle which means Paul actually had a unique kind of authority and even unique liberties as an apostle that they did not have. And yet he's going to deprive himself of those apostolic uh, privileges and liberties, which takes us, which is point number one. You might as well fill it in there. Paul uh, de- uh, deprived himself of his liberties despite his apostolic authority. And that's why he says, am I not an apostle? Uh, have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ? Probably most of them, if not all of them, had not seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead like he had. We know from the book of Acts, Paul had seen the Lord Jesus at least three times risen from the dead. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, where the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul as an apostle. Unique privilege. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? I am an apostle. God sent me to be an apostle here in Corinth. Corinth. I am an apostle of the church. God gives me divine revelation that I speak to you, that I write to you. You guys don't have that privilege. I'm an apostle. I'm a unique person. I have unique rights and privileges. But I withhold exercising my liberties for your good is what his main point is. I want to stop there for just a second on when Paul says, am I not an apostle? Because that's a question that comes up uh, among Christians is, you know, how many apostles were there? And then the all-important question for us today is, are there apostles today? That can actually be kind of a controversial question. It can even separate churches from fellowship from one another. Some denominations um, are built around the principle that there are apostles today, and they have apostles in their church who run their church. And so those become denominational uh, dividing lines on your view of apostles. So... It's important, this is basic Christianity in the Bible, but uh, the answer to the question, are there apostles today? I would say yes. And they live in heaven, really, the apostles of Jesus. And the reason I say that, are there apostles of Jesus Christ on the earth today? According to the Bible, I would say no. And And that's not really a fuzzy issue, it's pretty clear. Because Jesus selected the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, repeated all throughout the four Gospels, the twelve, everybody knew who they were. Uh, He commissioned them as apostles after prayer and very special selection. He trained them. And then one of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus and left. Then he had eleven. And then Peter said, now we've got to replace, because we need twelve apostles. And here are the qualifications of an apostle. Acts chapter one. One of the qualifications is, An apostle had to be alive in the days of Jesus. That's clear in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. There there is nobody alive today on planet Earth who is alive in the days of Jesus, but that's a qualification. That's what Peter said. Because they were trying to decide who's going to be the next apostle to supplant Judas. Qualification number two. An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the church has to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That really limits it. I have not seen the resurrected Christ, just so you know. Um, So you had to be alive in Jesus' day. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Uh, Paul goes on to give other credentials of an apostle of the church, and that is that they were given unique abilities, signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Uh, another unique ability and qualification of the apostles is that they received direct revelation from God to preach, to speak, to teach, and to write to believers and to the church. And there's nobody today on planet Earth getting direct revelation to be written down that is not in, that's not in the Bible but there are people who claim they're getting direct revelation from God, but the problem with that is, if, it, if you're getting direct new information from God today, then does it contradict the Bible? If it contradicts what the Bible says, then you're not getting apostolic information from some divine source. You've got to vet it through the Bible. When the, but there are those who, no, it doesn't contradict the Bible. It complements the Bible then you would have to say, well, then the Bible is not sufficient after all, and we need more information. That's what uh, many religions believe. They need more. Well, we believe the Bible, but we need more than the Bible. And that is not true. The churches always believe the Bible is sufficient. Uh, God is clear about that. So if somebody's given divine information that's supposed to complement the Bible, it is superfluous. It is not needed. It is extraneous. So... uh, we have the Word of God, the Bible. Oh, and one last thing about the apostles. They were only for a period of time. Ephesians uh, says this, First Corinthians 12 says this, that God gave, Ephesians chapter 4 says, God gave gifted men to the church, and he did it in chronological order. The first gifted people God gave to the church were first apostles. That is the word Paul uses in Corinthians. God first gave apostles. God second gave uh, prophets. God third, or then, gave prophets, uh, I mean, evangelists, teachers, pastors. So those are chronological words of time. And then Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that God laid the foundation of the church on the apostles, one foundation. So there is a finite number of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the original, or the 12 plus one new one, and then uh, God commissioned one more apostle to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and that was the apostle Paul. And Paul had to meet those qualifications of an apostle. He had to be called directly by Jesus. He had to be alive around the days that Jesus lived, and Paul was. He lived in that community. He was trained as a Jew. And Paul also was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And God also used Paul to lay the foundation of the church. The apostle Paul received direct revelation, wrote it down, preached it, taught it to the churches. Um, And Paul had those qualifications of signs, wonders, and mighty deeds that 2 Corinthians talks about are the qualifications or the mark of an apostle. So, Uh, We don't have apostles on earth today. We have apostles who speak authoritatively. They have left their direct revelation inscripturated in the Bible, and they are alive with Jesus in heaven. And what's kind of interesting, if you read the book of Acts... In uh, the flow of church history and the development of the growth of the church You see that the apostles and the prophets are doing their work foundationally at the beginning of acts And then as the new testament goes on you have the apostles phasing out uh, And they're dying as they're, they're laying the foundation And then there's a new group of spiritual ministers taking over and grabbing the baton of the apostles and that's the pastor It's kind of interesting if you read acts you don't see a whole lot of pastors mentioned especially early in the book of Acts, it's the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the prophets. It's primarily apostles. And then these elders were being trained and they would supplant the apostolic work and become pastors. And so uh, that was an office uh, that God would ordain to manage and oversee the church until he comes again. So... Um, I know it's a long answer, but it does get confusing because there are there are good churches and denominations where we are brothers in the Lord with certain people. For, for example, C.J. Mahaney is one of the most well-known evangelical pastors in America who their denomination would say he's an apostle. Formally, he's an apostle. That's what he's called. It's in their statement of faith. Um, I have a good friend who's a pastor in that denomination, and I asked him, because uh, we were trained theologically the same, but now he believes in apostles, but he didn't used to, and I said, oh, really? So... You believe in apostles today? I said, Yeah, it's possible. I said, Really? Well, name one. He said, C. J. Mahaney. I said, Really? He said, Yeah. I'm thinking, Okay. Um, I don't. I've never heard C. J. Mahaney call himself an apostle. Maybe he does believe that, but I'm I'm thinking. So is C. J. Mahaney an apostle? And Alistair Begg, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, not apostles? Because they're they're kind of influential and speak authoritatively. And if you say, Well, yeah, they're apostles, guess what? They would say, No, we're not. So you can't be an apostle and not know you're an apostle. That's really, really critical. Because the apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles, and in about 10 or 9 out of the 13, the first line, Paul, an apostle. Paul called as an apostle, so he knew it. And as a matter of fact, he refers to himself as an apostle right here. So you can't be an apostle and not know it. Anyway, uh, it's very important in terms of our understanding of how God runs his church. So moving on with Paul denying his apostolic authority the rights that he had. Verse 2, he goes on, Well, if to others I am not an apostle, because some people didn't consider Paul an apostle, because he was a Johnny-come-lately. It's like they only believed in the 12 apostles. and They criticized Paul for kind of being unique. So some christians actually believe that uh if to others i am not an apostle at least i am to you guys the Corinthians. you know i came here i planted the church you heard the gospel through me for the first time i discipled you you saw me maybe he did signs and wonders for all we know he gave him direct revelation it's undeniable to the corinthians that paul was an apostle no brainer at least i am to you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the lord i laid the foundation of this church and that was my job and you are the seal of authenticity ownership and authority the very fruit of my ministry, my apostolic ministry. It's undeniable. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. There are critics of Paul. Actually, you're going to see in 2 Corinthians, some people criticized Paul, accusing him of not being an apostle. And one of the reasons they did it is because when he was at Corinth, he didn't get paid. Yeah, you're, you're not a professional. You, you didn't even get paid. They didn't even give you money. Well, that was a false charge because Paul didn't receive money because he refused to accept it. That was his choice. So that's going to be a false accusation. Uh, And he says, my defense is this, verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Yeah, I know. So Paul came in. He got a job. He was a tent maker working with his hands and in that profession. And he brought in an income to support himself because he didn't want to be an imposition on the Corinthians. And he didn't want to be a financial imposition on the church. Because they were not Jews primarily, they were Gentiles. They didn't know anything about Old Testament Scripture. They didn't—they weren't trained in the idea that uh, there were Old Testament priests who worked full time in the ministry for the people and they actually got paid by the people and they lived off of their vocation from the donations of the people. From the tithes they received, from the animal sacrifices they received, from the crops that they received at offering time, the priests would actually live off of that, eat that and use that money to live by virtue of their vocation. So the Gentiles didn't have that understanding, and Paul knew that. He didn't want to be a stumbling block thinking that he was some itinerant preacher and they're just trying to make a buck uh, off these people and and leech them of their money. So he decided, by virtue of their conscience and their ignorance, it's not about money. It's about the truth of the gospel, and I'm not going to accept any money from these people. And there are times where we need to do the same thing based on context. Uh, There are times where Christians need to go, Christian ministers need to go and serve and be paid. I think a full-time pastor at a church or somebody full-time on staff that's doing the ministry of the Lord needs to be paid. Missionaries, Christian leaders, Christian administrators that are full-time doing the work of the Lord should be paid by virtue of their vocation. There are also times where we should not be paid for our Christian ministry. I was thinking, I get paid here at this church, but like when we take a missions trip down to Mexico to work with the orphanage there, we don't charge those people money. Give us money and we'll minister to you. No, absolutely not. So we have the saints raise the funds, and then we go minister to them without cost as a blessing to them because, again, of the context and the implications towards their view of the gospel. Very important. So that's what Paul's trying to get across here. Um, but he does say in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? So what he's saying, even though you guys don't pay me and you didn't pay me for a year and a half when I was the pastor there, I had the right to get paid by you as the pastor of your church. And he's actually going to quote from Scripture a little later. Uh, verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? So, Paul apparently was single when he was pastoring in Corinth. Maybe his wife died. That's what most people believe. He was a widower. But he's saying, uh, when I was at Corinth, I had, not only was I. I had the right to get paid by you at Corinth. I had the right to be married and bring my wife and have you pay for her living as well because she was with me and we were one flesh and I was serving in your midst full time. I had the right to be supported by my entire family by the local church. So that's his argument here. Uh, And apparently Peter came through Corinth at one point. Peter was married. Peter was not a single priest his whole life. Peter got married, he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus healed her. They met in uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house. So Peter was married, he took his wife with him on ministry trips. And that's what Paul's saying. Not only do I have the right to be married, but take my wife on my ministry trips with me and, and the church to pay for our needs as a family. I have that right. And apparently uh, there were, oh, and apostles of the Lord. At least James, the half-brother of Jesus, he was a preacher in the church and got paid by the church of Jerusalem, and they met his needs. Probably all those guys were married, Apollos. He probably got paid for his ministry while he was in Corinth. But Paul's point is, you know what, I have deprived myself of all these liberties that could have been mine for your good. You need to do Likewise, point number two, let's look at verses six and eight. Be like Paul who withheld his liberty despite the practice of universal custom. Paul deprived himself of a paycheck, even though he had the right to be paid. Verse six through eight says, or do only Barnabas and I. Barnabas was Paul's traveling mate, and they had a policy together. When we go into this town, uh, we're not going to ask money from people. When we go into Corinth, we're not going to ask him for money, Barnabas. And here's why. There were times where Paul went into cities and churches and he actually let them pay him. For example, Philippi, the church of Philippi, gave Paul money and, get this, a lot of it. Remember when Paul said, I, knew, I know how to live in poverty and I know how to live in wealth? There were times where Paul went and the, the Christians just showered it on him. Money, uh, accommodations, and the Philippians were very generous financially, even though they weren't rich. So they paid Paul. The Thessalonians paid Paul. Or Paul, let them pay him. It's kind of interesting. The only ones that I know of, Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi, were the churches that Paul specifically was willing to take a paycheck for them. And those were the churches he didn't have a problem with. So if you read Philippians, it's a happy letter. He's not rebuking them. He's not, it's not like the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, or the, when he lays into the Corinthians. But it's, it's all the happy Christians. They had a good rapport and a good relationship. And oh yeah, th- same thing with the Thessalonians. I thank God for you. Both letters, he's just, you are the best Christians, the greatest church. Thank you. And he accepted a paycheck from them. The same thing with the Bereans. They were They were noble-minded. And so Paul felt there was liberty there. They wouldn't stumble. Oh, they were so gracious. We have the rapport. It's dependent upon the context. I'm going to accept the paycheck from them because it is the right thing to do in that situation. So... Uh, but Or do only Barnabas and I um, ha, have not the right uh, to refrain from working? Verse 7, who at any time serves? And then here's his three illustrations. This isn't just a religious issue. This is like a universal custom in all of humanity that if you work, you should get paid. If you have a full-time vocation, you should live off of that vocation. And then his illustration is in verse Seven and following, he says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? A a soldier goes into the military full-time. He's not paying his way the whole way. He doesn't have to technically pay for his uniform, his room and board. He's serving his country. He's given all of his time. And we, the people, support him, and rightfully so, as he's providing a service of defense on our behalf. So soldiers work full-time. They get paid full-time for what they do. should be true of pastors. Uh, The next illustration is farmers. Farmers, they work harder than just about anybody on planet earth and they work the field and all day long and all year long and, and they get paid for what they do and part of their pay is they get to eat the, fruit, uh, the food that they're growing so their very vocation prov- provides their sustenance and then his last illustration is uh, the shepherd even the shepherd gets paid for what he does the full time shepherd many times shepherds were slaves even yet they still got paid for their work and rightfully so they got the drink from the milk of the calves or whatever uh, the animals they're working with And that was a part of their sustenance. So Paul's arguing this is a universal custom. It's true in every vocation in life. Why shouldn't it be true in the life of a Christian minister who works full-time giving his life to the church? If men who work for men should get paid, shouldn't men who work for God get paid? Does that only make sense? Is in essence Paul's argument. So in the practice of universal custom, and even though this was true that Paul should have been paid because he was working full time for the church, he still denied himself that money that they would have been obligated really to give him. Verse 8, he says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Which brings us to our next point. Paul deprived himself of his liberty. Uh, Despite his apostolic authority, despite universal custom, and number three, despite the provision of the Scripture. The Bible even said that you should pay the preacher. That's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Pay the preacher. Very important. He says the law says so. What he means by that is Scripture says so. So he quotes Scripture, verses 9 and 10. For it is written in the law of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus said so and one of the things that Moses wrote because God gave him that information is what Paul quotes in verse 9 you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing so that's a reference or an analogy to an ox who's a beast of burden and he's working and he's plowing the field and he's working all day long and he gets hungry and he's uh, working with the wheat and he's allowed to eat uh, some of the wheat that he's actually treading while he's eating it's kind of like Uh, runners who are running and they grab a bottle of water on the way uh, being fed their sustenance while they're working. The same was true of an ox. God said, don't muzzle the ox. Don't deprive him of eating when he's working to provide for you. He should uh, get sustenance from the very things that he does by virtue of his vocation. That's an analogy that Paul applies from animals to human beings. Um, And so that became a biblical principle and a proverb regarding people. The, wor- the workers worthy of his wages don't muzzle the ox while he is treading. And applied to the pastor, that meant pay the pastor. If he's full-time, and that's all he's doing to labor, and he doesn't, he can't labor anywhere else to make his money, then you should pay the pastor for his due, just like you'd pay anybody else in any other vocation. So that's the principle there. Uh, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? God is concerned about animals, and God even made this provision to protect animals, and God cares about people even more than animals. So how much more should people be allowed to get their sustenance from their hard work and their labor and their very vocation? So that's a scripture and biblical principle. And even though it was in the Bible that Christians should pay the pastor, Paul said in Corinth, you know what, you don't need to pay me. It's a liberty I have, it's a right I have, but I'm, not, I'm going to withhold because he didn't want them to stumble or misconstrue things or think that he was trying to take advantage of them. Verse 10. Or is God speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And all that's saying is if you are involved in any kind of vocation, either at the beginning of the task, the middle of the task or the end of the task, you should reap the fruits from that task. Uh, Everybody should be paid for their labor, regardless of where they are on the economic, social Latter, so Paul deprived himself, despite that it was a provision in Scripture. Number four, Paul deprived himself of his liberty, or uh, Paul withheld his liberty, despite number four his unique relationship to the Corinthians, his unique relationship. His unique relationship with the Corinthians was they they didn't have a church or any believers when he went into Corinth. He goes in there cold turkey evangelism, and people get saved for the first time. He establishes the very first church in that area. He becomes the very first pastor in that area. He becomes the very first apostle they are in contact with. They had a very unique relationship with Paul. Paul was their spiritual father. Not only their pastor and their apostle. He was the. They were the seal of his very ministry. Very unique relationship. So he couldn't say that about all the church. He couldn't say that about the church of Jerusalem. He didn't found that church. But he could say that about Corinth. And so because these people had a unique relationship that they were really blessed by or indebted to Paul, all the more they should have paid him financially or at least met his needs to survive. Yet he chose to deprive himself despite this unique relationship. That's verse 11. He says if we sowed spiritual things in you, I came into town, I preached. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Would it have been illegitimate of me to take a paycheck from you? Answer No, it would have been totally right and legitimate. But I didn't. I withheld that right and that liberty despite my unique relationship with you. And then finally, Paul goes on in number five, verses 12 through 14, as he kind of wraps up this idea of illustrating how he deprived himself in their midst for their good, deferring to them, loving them more than he loved himself. Refraining from exercising Christian liberty for the edification of others that they might not stumble in the faith. So his last point, and this is kind of the coup de grace or the crescendo, Paul deprived himself of his liberties for the good of the Corinthians, and it, not just for the Corinthians, but everywhere he went in ministry, it was a, a principle of life. And so uh, it's for the advance of the gospel. That was a principle that Paul lived by. When it was appropriate, depending upon the context and the situation, if needed, Paul would deprive himself of his liberties for the advancement of the gospel. And we need to do likewise. Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? What others? He's probably referring to Peter, who probably came and visited Corinth, preached. He was impressive. He was a key apostle. He gathered a following at Corinth. Remember the, the Peter crowd? That's what he's talking about. Also, others were Apollos. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He was eloquent. And he gained a following as well when he was in Corinth. And that's who Paul's talking about in verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not much more? Apparently, the Corinthians probably paid Peter and Apollos for their ministry when they were there at Corinth. And Paul's saying, wow, you paid Apollos, you paid Peter. They didn't found this church. They didn't bring the gospel to you for the first time. They weren't your pastor for a year and a half. They haven't had this legacy of a relationship with you that's so personal and intimate. Like I have. If they got paid, I should be getting paid. But I didn't. Again, using himself as a legitimate example. Then he goes on, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ, And so that, that is the ultimate priority. So for us, practically speaking, so here's the thing. In relating to other believers, when it comes to gray areas, first we have to diagnose, is this area indeed actually a gray area? We already talked about that. That's incredibly important. It comes up all the time because there are things that are not gray areas that Christians sometimes want to try to make a gray area. So we talked about how to diagnose whether something is actually a gray area or not. Then you have to decide, is it a gray area that actually applies to this scenario? We talked about how it had to be not just a gray area like playing cards or playing the electric guitar. But in this case, it had religious connotations inherently with it in the practice. And the weaker Christian at one time indulged in it religiously in a sinful manner. Then they got saved. So in hindsight, they're looking on this practice as something that could lull them back or pull them back into their sinful ways. That's his analogy. That's what he's talking about. And not all gray area issues fit that scenario. So step number one, we've got to diagnose, is it really uh, a gray area? Secondly, is it a gray area that is uh, parallel to this situation so that we can implement these principles? And then we have to, and then if it is, then priority number one is we need to be sensitive to those who have a weak conscience in this area, as Paul said. And then we need to be willing to refrain from practicing that Christian liberty so that we might not cause cause other Christians to stumble. Otherwise we will cause them to sin by violating their conscience and also we will undermine the work that Christ is doing to advance the gospel and his kingdom. So that needs to become a part of our, our worldview, our Christian ethic as we interact with others around us. And that's why he says, nevertheless, uh, we did not use this right, but we endure. There it is. That's the key. We didn't use this right. I just listed in verses 1 through 11, all the rights that I had as an apostle and as a Christian, and I refuse to exercise any of them in your midst for your good and for the advancement of the gospel. So we did not use this right, but we endure all Sometimes we need to be willing to deny ourselves even to the point of discomfort, frustration, get this, pain and suffering, or not being happy. If it's for the good and edification and building up of another brother or sister in the Lord. Endure. That's the implication of that word. It's not always easy. So, by the way, some of us might be thinking, yeah, this is right. We need to go and deprive ourselves of our liberties so that others might might not be uh, offended or weak, and immediately we're thinking remotely. You know, I need to go across the world and uh, deprive myself of my liberties and my material belongings, whatever else, for uh, the children in Mexico or uh, wherever else in the world. Well, actually, our first thinking is I need to exercise these principles starting at home, like in my family, like with the people it's hardest to do. Really, that's where it's at. That's where it starts. Like with my siblings, like with my spouse, because that's where it's most difficult to do. This is where we need to apply this ethic first. And then also in our church family, because the more you spend time with church family, it's like uh, your spiritual siblings, and many times that's hard to live together, right? As we begin to rub against one another, so that's where it starts. Start with yourself, start at home, in your immediate family, and those in concentric circles closest to you. Uh, And that's what Paul did. It was a a way he operated. It was part of his methodology of doing ministry and living the Christian life. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? So now he's referring to the priests of the Old Testament. Uh, No doubt he taught them the Old Testament while he was there and he's reminding them. The priests in the Old Testament uh, were allowed to live off of the offerings from the people. They lived in light of their vocation. In other words, in the Old Testament, the people paid the preacher. The the Levitical priests. They didn't have to get a side job. The people took care of them. And so that's why I said, Don't you know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Verse 14 So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There it is. So on the one hand, Paul's saying, I willingly chose to deprive myself and not get paid, but I do want you, don't leave it there. I should have been paid. And just because I was an example, that doesn't mean you you don't pay other preachers who deserve it. So that's important. Verse 14, what he's saying. So also the Lord directed, the Lord directed, what does that mean? Jesus said, that's what the Lord directed me. Did Jesus really say this? Did Jesus say pay the preacher? The reason I'm asking that is because today in church growth movements and urban ministry and there's all kinds of paradigms and models of how to start a church, build a church, manage a church, pastor a church uh and people have asked me so what do you think of bivocational ministry uh what do you mean by bivocational by ministry it means a lot of different things to a lot of people um i'm willing to have more than one job to survive that's fine and a pastor needs to be willing to do that sometimes a pastor needs to be willing to not get paid at all if it's like a startup church plant part-time whatever um but if you are full-time and that's all you do, you should be supported by the people some way in doing your ministry. But this biv- bivocational idea, many times uh, people use the, some of this stuff here, Paul uses saying, see, the pastor should not be paid. So he has the job of being pastor part-time, but he needs to get another job even if it's full-time so that he can earn his money there because the church shouldn't be paying the pastor. This is a very common, popular view of church hierarchy and the way to do pastoring here in america and here in the bay area and modern evangelical models of church planting and they take that view from here so they would argue theologically you shouldn't be paying the pastor and there are other denominations who hold to that like uh i think the jehovah's witnesses i think even the mormons don't have a play a paid clergy and there are evangelical denominations the same we don't and they're kind of proud of it we don't pay our preacher our pastor because paul didn't get paid well, actually, Paul did get paid. And it's a biblical principle to pay the preacher if that's what he's doing to make a living. And he's serving, he's honoring God in that capacity. So very important is Paul is making the balance. He doesn't want other pastors to suffer from his godly example by them not getting paid. So also the Lord directed. Jesus said, oh, and I need to answer that question. Did Jesus ever say, pay the preacher? Yes, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Sent 70 out. They went and preached. And he said, when you go in and you preach and people receive you in your home and they offer you food and sustenance, take it, enjoy it, live off of it. It's one example of Jesus saying, pay the preacher. And then 1 Timothy 5, that revelation that uh, Jesus gave Paul to write down, pay the preacher. Not only pay the preacher, pay him well. Honor the full-time pastor's elders who labor diligently in word and doctrine. Honor them with double honor, whatever that means. But at a minimum, it means they should be paid to a point where they can live and survive. Sometimes Christians think it is, well, it's spiritual to have a lack of money. It's spiritual to make the pastor suffer. Or just some people have just kind of a weird view of money that if you have a lot of money, it's not spiritual. If you have a lot of money, it's inherently sinful. That is not true. Um, So we've got to have a right view of even money there. It's very practical. I'm not begging for a raise here just in case you're wondering. Some of you are like, hmm, uh, hmm yeah, What the, What's? where is he going with this? <sighs> no, not at all. By the way, eight years here at GBF, this church has taken very good care of our family, so we praise the Lord for that. So anyway, that's uh, the Apostle Paul talking uh, on a very personal level with these Corinthians so that they might model godliness. And the principle, again, for us to take away from this, there's a lot of things, but I would say at a minimum, Uh, Paul says despite all these rights Paul was entitled to uh, to all these privileges and money and sustenance yet he deprived himself that he might not cause others around him to stumble and so also we need to be conscious of other believers around us and live by the principle of not love yourself but deny yourself that is the exact antithesis of what the world believes isn't it they tell us love yourself Fulfill your desires. Jesus said, deny yourself and follow him. When you do that, you are most Christ-like. And God, help us to live that way in a way that pleases him. Let's go ahead and pray and thank God for his, the clarity of his word. Father, we thank you for our time together, for, again, the time to worship you corporately with fellow believers, to fellowship with the saints, to be encouraged by the saints to sing to you to be reminded from these amazing truths from your word we thank you that the bible is not just a book it's the living word of god that penetrates our heart our mind our conscience our very soul and can even change our life and our thinking and how we live and we we pray that's the case with what we've heard and studied together today holy spirit help us live out these truths in obedience to you in a way that pleases you all for your glory that we would be like christ denying ourselves in preference for others we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009